You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Nine. We met at eight. I was on time. No, you were late. Ah, yes. I remember it well. In, in general, you know, memory is your ability to store and retrieve information. Yeah, come on in. Hey. Hi, Jay. Sandra. Jay, you can sit over there. Right, and, right here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Sandra, would you sit over there in that blue chair? Yeah. One thing that is becoming more and more apparent as we study memory is that there's no real item such as memory that just exists as an umbrella term. I want to do a little test on you, more specifically on your brains. In fact, the parts of your brains that remember things, if if you still have those parts. Is it going to hurt? I don't think so. This is short-term memory so many different types of memories. And the more we study it by looking at the brain, we realize how many different types of memories there are. Molly's going to read off a baker's dozen list of very common items. You with me? Okay. All right. All right. I'm going to haul you guys back in here in an hour with the idea, one at a time, you'll recall as many of those items as you can. So we'll see how good your memory is. That carriage ride. You walked me home. You lost a glove. I lost a comb. There's memories for skills like riding a bike or uh, typing, which seem to be very different in many ways from the memories that you use to remember an event or even just the fact. And then we realize that there's also memories that we use in the very short term. We call that working memory. Okay, dump truck, coffee filter, pliers, flamingo, parking space, tangerine, computer mouse, chipmunk, fire escape, lipstick, Bicycle and penguin. Okay, you got it? Uh, no. (laughs) No. Okay. I remember it. One of the challenges of neuroscience is really to study all these different aspects of memory. The two of you, get out of here. We'll call you back in an hour. Okay. things we remember so well. And other memories, well, they're there. If we could just get to the right part of our brains and retrieve them, it's frustrating when memory slips, and it can get worse as you get older. So who doesn't want a boost in memory? No, forget fallible biological memory. Computers can do an end run around it with digital storage. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak. Are We Alone looks at all of this, whether you'd want a memory boost and why. It may be more important to forget than to remember. And that may make these two folks feel better. Let's find out how Jay and Sandra did on their memory tests. We waited an hour before hauling them back into the studio, but thanks to the magic of radio, here they are now. Oh, but first, that list, quickly again. Dump truck, coffee filter, pliers, flamingo, parking space, tangerine, computer mouse, chipmunk, fire escape, lipstick, bicycle, and penguin. Okay, Sandra, well, uh, welcome back. Give me the items that you remember on that list, and I'll just check them off here. Okay, well, I remember lipstick... Yeah. Uh, bicycle, mm-hmm. uh, fire hydrant, dump truck, and pliers. Okay, Sandra, you got four of them completely right. Dump truck, pliers, lipstick, and bicycle. Instead of fire escape, you said fire hydrant. Um, why is it that you remember these particular four items out of the 13? Any idea? Well, I remember lipstick first because there's a big red flashlight sitting on the desk in front of me, and I saw that right when you said it, so that sort of image kind of stuck in my head. Mm-hmm. And then I remembered bicycle because my bicycle is that exact same color. And pliers, because I actually saw pliers in my head when you said pliers. 
All right, well, we're going to bring Jay in here and see how he does. Hey, Jay. Hi, Seth. Okay, well, just uh, tell me uh, the items you do recall. I think you started off with a dump truck and a coffee filter. I know there were a couple of birds, I think a flamingo and a penguin. And I remember the lipstick because I thought of the flamingo wearing lipstick for some reason. Why did you remember those five items? Any idea? I started out trying to, like, come up with some sort of story that would give the items context. Did you make pictures of them in your head, or did you? I tried to, yeah, imagine a dump truck with the coffee filter in the back, but that's about when I ran out of story. Well, you remembered one more item than Sandra. Score. (laughs) That's all that really matters. (laughs) Sandra and Jay both remembered dump truck and lipstick. Seth reminds me, why do we have a red flashlight here on the desk? Well, we need that flashlight to, you know, check the cables. And besides, a red one works as well as a blue one. (laughs) I see. Sandra and Jay also both made pictures in their minds to remember the objects, and that's common. And it's something that neurologist Adam Ghazali is familiar with in his studies of how the brain captures and retrieves memories. At his neuroimaging center at the University of California, San Francisco, his team uses fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging, which maps how blood moves through the brain, and EEG, electroencephalography, to investigate how memory changes with aging. He's found, for one, that memory loss is linked to increased distraction as we age. And he says that memory is complex. Actually, that's an understatement. But that scientists have made some conceptual breakthroughs in understanding how it works. For example, they've done away with the idea that there's a single memory center in the brain. Adam, what exactly does that mean? It now appears that it's not that one brain area is the memory area. There's a lot of attention to the hippocampus. It's these parts deep in your brain. There are two of them, one on each side, and they're involved in forming new memories. So we know that there are brain areas that are particularly important for different aspects of memory. But what we realize more and more is that memories are distributed meaning that they're encoding, how they're encoded is spread out throughout the brain. And many different brain areas, things that we call neural networks, are involved in both the storing of memories, which is basically the associations between different brain areas that encode the different parts of the memory, but also involved in the retrieval when you actually have to pull this information back. But why is it then that I'll remember some things, I can get my neurons to remember some things, for example, maybe what someone said to me, but I can't remember, I don't know, an address? Right. So neurons fire, that's true. That's Neurons are the main cell in the brain that's involved in the higher order processes that we're talking about, and they communicate with each other. They use neurotransmitters to do that. And what's clear is that although that very basic principle of how the neuron works is very important, what's more important for things like memory and and attention and language and higher order abilities is that it's not just a neuron working, it's how it's working in the context of other neurons. So it's basically this very complex matrix of neurons all communicating with each other. And we believe it's these patterns that define things like memories. Why some memories are more effectively laid down than others, there's lots of reasons for that. Some associations are easier to make between things. Some are more abstract and more difficult. A lot of what we now understand is that, as I just already described to you, memory itself is so complicated, but it's even more complicated than that because memory doesn't occur as an isolated process. How you remember things are influenced very much by other aspects like attention. So what's going on in the world around you or in the world inside of you might also influence influence how well you remember something as it's occurring. Okay, so if I retrieve a memory of my mother who's no longer around, but I have a very clear image of her, Uh as I do that, as I think of her, what's happening in my brain? Is it firing? What's it doing? Yeah, well, you you raise... (laughs) Again, every every question just highlights to me how complicated memory is. But you used a word that I think is very appropriate, image, right? You had an image of her. And mm-hmm. we know that there's this other concept that we call mental imagery. If you close your eyes and you picture yourself in your house, or you might picture what was on your plate for dinner or anything, you basically feel that you have a perception of it, that you can look around it, that it's actually in your mind's eye, which is how the phrase goes. So now we know that mental imagery, and it might might be visual, it might be auditory hearing a song, that part of a lot of memories, not all memories, but a part of what the retrieval process is, is the recreation of the episode. This has been referred to as sort of mental time travel. And we know that the parts of your brain 
the sensory parts of your brain that are active when you're actually perceiving something, when you're looking at, let's say, a book, and then you try to imagine looking at the book, that the visual parts of your brain that represent the book become active again. Not quite as much, but those areas are activated. So, you know, to give a neural basis of what you described, when you're picturing your mother's face, you're really recreating the representation of the face in the visual areas of the brain. Mm -hmm. And that probably involves interactions between the hippocampus, which is involved in memory retrieval, as well as the front part of your brain, which acts to coordinate all of this um, activity that you're generating internally. Now, your area of expertise, or at least one of them, uh-huh. is on this connection between aging and memory loss. Now, I think the maybe the popular view of why we lose memories is that our neurons die off. It's that simple, but it's not that simple, is it? No, it's far from that simple. We thought for a long time that we lost a tremendous amount of neurons as we got older. And now the new view over the last 20 years is even work that I did as a graduate student that the brain actually does not lose a lot of neurons. It shrinks and a lot of that is due to large cells becoming smaller. But we don't really have that view. I think it's an optimistic view knowing that a lot of the substance of the brain and the structure is still there. In terms of why we become more forgetful with age, It's a complicated problem. What our lab has focused on, and so my area of expertise here, is that we're looking at how attention and memory interact with each other. Specifically, attention can have two sides also. Attention can have focus when you're really trying to drill your resources in on something and pay attention to it, but as well as ignoring, which is going on all the time. There's all this information around you that's irrelevant to what you're doing. What we found in our research that the act of ignoring is incredibly important for remembering things. Because if you allow things in that are irrelevant to you, then you are not able to create as good a representation of the things that are important and it causes interference. And you may not even be aware of that you're distracted. In fact, that's what some of your research has shown. It's really fascinating research that it comes on this level. Our level of distraction is just below consciousness. And the conclusion is, is it's not so much that we're not able to access our memories. It's that our memories are not being laid down efficiently because we're being distracted in these little ways that we're not even aware of. That's true. That's true. So during the act of trying to remember something, you're focusing on what's relevant, right? That's your goal. And we find that in our study, using the measures that we have that older adults, and when I say older, I mean healthy 60 and 70-year-olds, seem to focus on what we tell them is relevant as if they were 20 years old. But what they're not doing effectively is ignoring all the other irrelevant information that we're presenting to them that they know is distracting before it even gets there. And so even if their intentions are to ignore, we find that that information gets in, and we know it gets in because we're looking at what's happening in their brain while that irrelevant information is in front of them, and we could see that it's activating their brain too much. And then we have a correlation between the degree that that irrelevant information gets in and how well they remember the things they were trying to focus on. And you can't really control it. To use a, a sports analogy, which I don't think I've ever used in my life, um, <laughs> if a football player is running for a touchdown, it's an interference. I mean, the touchdown is the memory trying to be laid down, and what's coming in is some other stimuli um, that, that tackles it before it makes it into long-term storage. Yep, I think that was a perfect sports analogy. Some friends of mine will be impressed. (laughs) I wonder if multitasking falls under this umbrella of distractions. Um, Recently, you've been asked to comment on the phenomenon of multitasking. Specifically, I read the comments that you gave regarding cell phone talking and walking, specifically walking into intersections as people do when they're on Mm -hmm. their phones. They're not paying attention. Of course, this puts us in physical danger Mm -hmm. because we might get hit by a truck. But I wonder if multitasking because we are distracted, is also hurting our ability to lay down memories. That's a fantastic question. We are doing studies on that. We actually have a couple of papers that just came out in the last several months on that. I tend to think of, if we go back to that statement of interference in in the football analogy, I think that there are many types of interference that you can have from things that are external to you. And one of them is distraction. That's things that are totally irrelevant that you should be ignoring, like the conversation going on at the table next to you while you're talking to someone. You're, You're actively trying to keep that out. And the other is a conscious decision to do more than one thing at a time. It causes interference, of course, because you can't really do more than one thing effectively at a time, especially complicated things. But you choose to make that decision. We call those interruptions. And we're looking at if there's a difference in the brain between when you're 
interference is distraction versus when it's an actual interruption. And we find there are differences. Interruptions are more detrimental to memory formation than distractions. And we're trying to figure out why, and we're looking at brain activity. And then older adults are susceptible to both distraction, as we've already described, but also interruption, and even more so than they are susceptible to distraction. So in our most recent paper, we show that older adults are very, very influenced by this act of multitasking and how it affects their memory in, in a really negative way. Adam Gazali, thank you very much for talking with us. My pleasure. And I have to ask this. Do you remember what the first question was I asked you? <laughs> um, about uh, memory? <laughs> That'll do. <laughs> Thanks so much. My pleasure. Adam Gazali directs the Neuroscience Imaging Center at the University of California, San Francisco. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Okay, I, I want scientists to understand memory so they can give mine a boost, but maybe the future isn't about improving the connections between those little gray cells, that soft, squishy, not-so-hard drive on top of your neck. But about improving connections in the digital realm instead. Yes, the future of your most cherished memories may rest in the hands, or rather, in the connections of computers. I'm Gordon Bell, and I'm a principal researcher at Microsoft Research. I'm Jim Gemmel. I'm a senior researcher at Microsoft. Biological memory fades, right? But computer memory doesn't. In fact, it's just about perfect, but most important, it just keeps getting cheaper. In 1998, Gordon and Jim realized this, and they wondered if they could capture everything one of them did for, for weeks or months or even years. Every conversation, every email, every web page visited, all of it would be available for perusal at a later date. Eventually, they strapped a digital camera onto Bell and pressed record. But you guys are talking about a technological stunt, right? No, we're talking about the electronic memory revolution, how the coming decade's going to see a transformation to society as electronic memories proliferate. They figured ordinary human memory is a mess. It's disorganized. It's stored in all areas of the brain, as we heard earlier. But every piece of information in a computer is reliably retrievable. And by 2020, your laptop computer will not only have more compute power than a human brain, but a lot more memory. My colleague Gordon Bell uh, was attempting to go paperless, and this was back around 1998, and as he got into it, we said, gee, uh, what can we really do with this? So he said, Gordon, you're the guinea pig. We're going to record everything we can of your life, and I'm going to write lots of software to uh, give you more to play with. Well, okay. Now, but you started with your, your buddy there, Gordon Bell's personal life, right? The idea was to get his personal experience onto a computer, onto a hard drive, if you will. Did you just type the data in? I mean, how'd you get it in? Well, step one was, as I mentioned, Gordon was trying to go paperless. So he had been scanning all his papers and trying to get rid of that. And then we got really gung-ho in that avenue. We said, well, let's take paintings and posters off the walls, and let's take pictures of coffee mugs with interesting logos on them, and let's take your old home photos and scan those, and your old home videos. So th and that we saw as, okay, this is sort of digitizing the past. Then we said, well, what could we capture going forward if we were making a concerted effort this way? Well, let's capture everything that's going through your PC and record all your communications and track what window's in the foreground and what you're doing with it and all your chat sessions. And let's yeah, start using new hardware. So uh, we, Lindsay Williams, uh, who's a colleague in our Cambridge lab, invented this thing called the SenseCam, which uh, I'm wearing one right now, getting pictures of you here in the studio. And uh, it takes pictures automatically as sensors help it know 
when to snap pictures. And we started carrying GPS devices for location. And Gordon has an audio recorder for recording audio. Uh, we hooked up his uh, telephone to record his telephone conversations in his office. We started downloading call logs from his cell phone. I mean, we really, you know, if we could do it, we wanted to try it out, see what it was like. And, and Gordon, you were kind of the uh, wired up guinea pig in this experiment. I mean, was your life normal or did you forget about the stuff that was recording everything you were doing? Oh, right. We maintain that, in fact, you have to have it totally normal uh, and that you're really not going to spend any more time recording your life than you would otherwise. Otherwise, it becomes a burden. So so you were just walking around. You had this device. Were you wearing this device that was well, taking... Well, I, uh, I really didn't wear the recording camera a lot. I did I did it maybe in the order of 100 episodes. An what, epi- what, what's, what's an episode? An episode is something like a birthday party or I'm going to a conference and I want to capture a lot of pictures or I know I'm going to go on a nice walk and you want to record that sequence so that you essentially have this long sampled time where you've got a lot of interesting images. Now, interestingly, as I saw the benefit, I would start doing it too. I said, wow, that's really cool. So I started scanning all my paper and getting rid of my paper. And we, you know, one tool we did for Gordon was we wrote something that would record every web page he visited. And that's an actual copy of the web page, not just the URL. And I've been doing that too. I'm kind of interested in how much space this was taking. I mean, how much, how much hard disk space were you burning up in a typical day? What, what does it cost to log your life? Yeah, this is really fascinating. Expectations change is the key point here. So what we actually did, Gordon was burning through about a gigabyte a month. Only a gigabyte a month. Uh, only, That's not much. Only a gigabyte a month. And actually what inspired us to get started was we wrote down a list of what we thought would be really incredible. I mean, what if you had all your email for your whole life and every book you've ever read and eight hours of audio a day and 10 pictures a day and, you know, what we thought would be really amazing. And we ran the numbers and we said, gee, your whole life would fit in a terabyte. So that's part of what excited us. Now, how, how would you get back to your life, Gordon? How, how could you recall this information? You know, we either recall stuff by time or by space. But, but, but isn't that difficult? Because you'd have to remember one or the other. Well, every image is recorded, has a timestamp on it, and that's part of your whole life. So, and in fact, we look at the database for this as really a transaction processing a database for your life. So every event in your life, in a sense, gets captured. Uh, now, Jim, Gordon talked about a database here. So, mm. you know, that's a piece of software. So if, for example, he wanted to recall somebody's conversation on a phone, but he, but he didn't remember when the phone call was, he might not even remember their name. I mean, could he actually get to that stuff? Yeah, it turns out that the more data we bring together, the easier it is to find stuff. That it, often you have what we call a little memory hook. You remember something. So, for instance, Gordon remembers, well, he was talking to so-and-so. And so we should be able to go and based on who was the caller in his call log, say, well, let's look at when these calls are. And then sometimes when you see those listed, it jogs your memory. You go, well, I remember. It wasn't that one in April. It must be this other one. And with the database, you can say, well, what happened at the same time as the phone call? And it'll show you all kinds of things. Oh, here's the photo you took, or here's the web page you looked at, and uh, there you've got it. Okay, well, then let me ask you one more question here then, Gordon. What, what about the problem that if, if I were doing this, I mean, I can imagine, you know, 10 years down the road or whatever, some number of years uh, down the road. You should be doing it now. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, in a sense, we are. We're recording this, uh, We are we? that, yes. yes. But, but will I be tempted to spend my days surfing my life, you know, looking Ab- back at what abs- I... Absolutely not. I mean, I mean, you could in principle, but let's hope you have something better to do at that point. Let's <laughs> see what my old girlfriends had to say to me, you know. Oh, yeah, if you wanted. Do, want to do that? That's great. <laughs> okay. Well, finally, Jim, maybe maybe the big payoff is a few generations from now when people can access the wisdom, if that's what it is, of their grandparents or whatever, that we have, we've built up a few generations of accessibility to what people have done, what people have experienced, what people have thought, and, and we could hear things the way they said them, not the way we imperfectly remember them. I mean, wh- what do you see as the long-term consequence for this in, in terms of society? Well, long term, if we're talking generations, you're right. We're talking about the ability to record a life in a kind of fidelity that's been unknown and that only the great and the famous have ever approached before. And, you know, I sure wish that I could consult more of my grandfather's life. And we even look at 
you know, if we have enough of your life, we can talk about doing the synthetic you, an avatar that draws from your corpus to answer as you would so that you could even have conversations uh, with people from the past. So that's very exciting. But, you know, I also want to say that the thing that will get this rolling is the excitement now. You know, we haven't had much time to talk about the health impact, what it's going to mean as people have real quantitative values of their health, uh, vast data on this. We share this data. We're able to do studies on levels, unprecedented levels. It's going to be very exciting. I think health is going to drive this, productivity, memory improvement. And then we're going to get as a sort of side benefit for posterity, oh, gee, we have these really fascinating records to consult. All right. Well, Jim Gemmel and Gordon Bell, thank you very much for being with us. It's a pleasure. We're delighted to be here. Gordon Bell is a principal researcher at Microsoft Research. Jim Gemmel is senior researcher for the company. Find out how to digitize your life in their book, Total Recall, How the E-Memory Revolution Will Change Everything. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the honor of presenting to you one of the most remarkable men in the world, Mr. Memory. A question, please. Uh, what won the Derby in 1921? Mr. Jack Jones, humorist, with Steve Donegoff, won a length at the odds of six to one, second and third, Craig and Aaron, and Lemonora. Am I right, sir? Right. Mr. Memory's prodigious recall skills made for quite a show in Alfred Hitchcock's 1935 thriller, The 39 Steps. But it also made Mr. Memory a political target after he committed to memory the details of a new secret weapon. In a dramatic Hitchcocky sort of way, it suggests the dangers of total biological recall. And in what will be a relief to many of you who, at this very moment, can't remember where those darn car keys are, University of California Irvine neurobiologist James McGaw says that forgetting is as important to the brain as remembering. For one of his studies, Dr. McGaw identified seven people who possess an extraordinary capacity for recalling autobiographical events. The case illustrate what happens when the brain doesn't let go of the past. If I asked them about what they did on any day of their life, say roughly after the age of 11 or 12, something of that kind, uh, they'll be able to tell me with high degree of reliability what they did on that particular day, and also they'll be able to say what kind of public event of importance occurred on that day. So the way, the way it works is this. I will say um, uh, March 17th, uh, 1994. That's my question. And the answer is routinely. Well, first of all, it was a Tuesday, if in fact it is a Tuesday, and they're always correct on that. So they know the day of the week for the date that I give. And then they'll say, well, you know, on that day, nothing very much happened. Um, I I had a, a fight with my boyfriend or girlfriend, and then I went out to lunch with some friends and then that evening, uh, we went to a concert, but that was not a particularly important day. Oh, by the way, that was the date that this uh, rock star died of an overdose of a drug. Now, we know both of these things are highly reliable because for most of the subjects that we have uh, worked with, they have things we can use to make up a test about their lives, things that they have collected that the family gives us, and or they've maintained a diary. And just to be clear what they're able to do, they can remember the entire day from the moment they woke up Well, to... uh, it's like our memory, us ordinary folks, our memory of yesterday. So I can ask almost anybody to tell me what they did yesterday. And they'll know the day of the week in most cases and then run through the day. And it, that's what it seems like to me. Now, is it a particular kind of memory? You said yeah. autobiographical what yeah. kind of memory is that, and how does that differ from other kinds of memory that maybe they're not as adept at? Well, by autobiographical, I mean uh, remembering what happened to them. This is not like uh, our knowledge of who the first president of the United States was. We know there is George Washington, but no one listening to this has that as an autobiographical memory. We have that because we learned that in school. And we just know that. It's the same as knowing that one and one is two. But we don't remember when we learned one and one is two. Autobiographical memory is remembering details of one's life during particular times. Now, enhanced memory is something that many people claim they wish for. Do your subjects consider this extraordinary memory a gift? Yes, they all consider it a gift. 
and none would wish to be without it because I've interrogated them many times on exactly that point. However, it bothers them to differential degrees so that at one extreme are individuals who remember a lot of bad things that happened in their lives and these bad things bother them and they can't turn them off easily. At the other extreme, even these individuals, but uh, to some extent other individuals to a greater degree, remember the good things and they savor them and they like this ability. And they, they say to me, wouldn't you like to have a memory like this? Uh, what's wrong with you? Why can't you do this? They are as puzzled about us as I am about them. I understand that fMRI scans have been done on the brains of some of these individuals. I'm wondering what they've revealed, if anything, about the source of the super memory. Well, we have obtained structural MRI uh, scans. Oh, so not fMRI. No, we have not done mm -hmm. fMRI. That's in the future. We want to know how the brains work. I should say that's the F stands for functional. <laughs> yeah, for, that's right. And we're, that's what we want to know. And we're not there yet. We've started off with structural and we've examined a, a lot of areas of the brain. And our preliminary work does indeed suggest that some brain areas in these subjects are larger than those of control subjects of the same sex and age. But the problem is that there is a, a serious chicken-egg problem here. Are these brain regions larger because they just happen to be larger and it enables them to do this? Or are they larger because they have done this a lot and the use of the brain has made these regions larger? I was interested in what you said about how these subjects consider this remarkable ability and they do consider it a gift. But yet, this idea of remembering everything doesn't necessarily seem like a gift, even though at times there are things that we wish we could remember. Well, that speculation has a lot of following. As a matter of fact, many years ago, William James said that if we were to remember everything, that would be as bad as to remember nothing, because you have too much. And that is my view of the ability to learn and remember everything, because everything is, is getting in the way of what you're doing at the time. It's important that we forget in order to get along in life. These people don't remember everything. What it is, is that the things that they have learned, they don't forget. It's a very different concept. It's not as though they're gobbling up every sensory experience that, that they have. I want to um, move on and develop this idea of the importance of forgetting. Yes. You said that it's an important that we the brain does forget some things, which will come as a comfort to people who do forget things, I think. Um, what is the role of forgetting in the brain, and, and what do you mean by that? Oh, it's a it's a very complicated issue. If you have too many things coming at you at the same time, how can you get order out of your life? For example, let's suppose, uh, not suppose, but you and I are, are creating sentences right now. Too much information, readily accessible, readily available, would make it very difficult for us to articulate an idea and maintain a theme because we would just be flooded with too many ideas at the same time. So excuse me, just to be clear on this term, when you say too much information, do you mean too much from the past or do you mean like all the stimuli going around me right now? Someone's Both. walking in the hall? Both. Okay. Both. So I have to I have to filter all that out and I don't know if filter is the right word. So well, that I, I, think, can... I think filter is a highly appropriate word. So it sounds like as you said, filtering, if that's the appropriate word, the brain is constantly filtering. How does it decide what to remember and, and what to let go of? It sounds like it only has so much storage capacity and not everything can be stored. Well, I don't, the, I don't, the brain doesn't have any storage capacity limitation. We, we don't know what the element of storage is, but as far as we know, we don't know of any limitations on that. So that, that's not the bothersome thing. Let me address the point of, of forgetting here. Not only is, is forgetting important in order to have some order in our life, but it's also important from just a, getting along in life. Let, let's suppose that you and I really could remember in detail all of the insults, all of the slights, and the time at which they occur, and who gave the insults. You harbor a lot of information which constrains your behavior. For most of us, time takes care of that because we forget over time. And so we get on along with our lives because we don't maintain all of these old stories of what happened to us and who did what to us and so on. 
what we're left with are the stronger memories, the important memories, things that were really bad or things that were really good, and those we hang on to for a longer, longer period of time. And it sounds like, as you said, it's important not to remember the details of the awful things that people right. have said to us, but wouldn't it be nice to remember the details of the beautiful things that have been said to us? But if I follow what you just said... I don't remember the words exactly in every case. But you remember the event. You remember the event or how the person made you feel. Absolutely. Uh, We we remember the sweet things in life better than we remember uh, driving along the road looking at road signs. Let me ask you just a couple final questions that are a bit speculative. What if we could enhance the human brain with electronics or something one day? We might be able to do that with drugs so that we could remember more as a neuroscientist, how would you react to that I scenario? Bad, I think it's a bad idea. I think it's a very bad idea uh, for reasons that we've just been discussing, that to remember everything for, our, for us folks is not a, an important thing. So if we could remember everything, I don't see that there would be a, a serious ad- advantage. There are two Microsoft researchers who are going about documenting one of the researchers' entire life with video camera, and they're putting everything into a computer, all emails, everything that they can. They're taking pictures of everything because they believe a time will come when computers are so strong that you will be able to document your entire life. That doesn't mean you always have to be living it, but you have it all there. Is, is that a distinction you would make in memory upgrade? Uh, you mean they will have it available in their computers? Yes, is that it? yes. For what purpose? <laughs> to refer back to when they can't remember a certain conversation or something, but then you'd have the fidelity would be so great. Well, I could I could imagine that that would be useful to me in some areas of my life, and and science would be kind of useful. I wouldn't have to look up a reference; I could just you know download it from the computer. But to have a a micro record of every experience in life uh, offhand. Uh, our brains of ordinary folks are beautifully designed to preserve the strong stuff and let the weak stuff pass. And that seems to have gotten uh, human nature along pretty well for, you know, many thousands of years. Why you would want to do what's been what what you suggest is not at all clear to me. It's interesting because it sounds like as a as a researcher who studies memory, you may think that we're a little obsessed with memory humans yes. with improving it. Yes. Yes, over-obsessed with it. Most major drug companies have for decades tried to develop memory-enhancing drugs. And most people that I've talked to when I speak to public groups, I ask them to raise their hands how many would like to have a memory-enhancing pill. Most of the hands go up. And for ordinary experiences and ordinary memory, we can do better at memory enhancement ourselves simply by paying attention and then rehearsing material that's particularly important to us. We have all the machinery to do that. And all of the machinery they have is going to be at least as good as any conceivable memory-enhancing drug would be. James McGaugh, thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you. James McGaugh is a neurobiologist at the University of California, Irvine. Coming up, the case for deleting memories from your hard drive and from your brain itself. It's Are We Alone? With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Victor Mayer Schoenberger agrees that what you forget is as important as what you remember, on your computer at least. We heard earlier about Jim Gemmell and Gordon Bell's project to record everything. And achieve as much as they could total recall. But Victor Mayer Schoenberger's response to that is one word, and it's the title of his book, Delete. Victor, you tell the story of a woman in your book whose MySpace photo of her wearing a pirate's costume while thoroughly drunk got her fired. Is that an example of needing to erase stuff that could incriminate you? Well, the problem was that she had uh, no 
tool, no technical tool, no ability to get rid of that photo very easily once she put it online. Because the moment she puts stuff online, whether it's on her web page or on Flickr or on anywhere else, it gets indexed and crawled by search engines and made available in the Internet Archive and so forth. So the moment you put something online, it's very hard for you to take it offline again. And that's the lack of choice that we currently experience. I want us humans to have that choice again, the choice to take stuff down that we no longer think is relevant for us. This wasn't a problem, presumably, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I mean, some of the examples you cite in your book are uh, photography or or cinematography, you know, movies or, or even sound recordings. They were expensive to make. Not so long ago, the digital revolution has changed this. Your book had to wait for the digital revolution, I assume. Indeed, it did, because for all of human history up until the digital revolution, forgetting was easy for us humans, uh, and remembering was hard. In fact, when we wanted to remember by writing it down, by painting it, by taking a photograph, whatever it was, it was relatively costly. It cost us a little bit of money to do that, a little bit of effort. In the digital age, that kind of situation has reversed. In the digital age, the default a lot of times is to remember to store something and to make it accessible. Take your digital camera. When you connect your digital camera to your computer, you can select which photos to upload, or you can just press the button and upload all of them. And most of us upload just all of the photographs because it is cheaper for us uh, in terms of effort. Remembering is, in fact, cheaper than forgetting. Maybe you could sort of sketch for me the kind of trouble I personally would run into if I just took the easy way out, pushed that button you talked about, and uploaded every photograph my digital camera made. I mean, how is that going to come back and bite me? How, how do you see that happening? Two ways. First, what, what I call the power dimension. Um, if other people have a lot of information about me, even information I have forgotten that ever existed, like Google knowing what I searched for six months ago, then by looking at that, they might have quite some power over me. It's about what you release or say on Facebook or MySpace or what you upload on Flickr. Well, Victor, clearly, if you're making information about yourself available to many people, as we do on social network sites, all right, fairly straightforward why that's not necessarily a good idea. But give me an example of how, if you will, too much memory in, in other areas is taking place and might be harmful. Well, I had a horrible case that I was made aware of relatively recently. A woman called in to a radio show that I was a guest at and told the story about how she was imprisoned for a crime when she was 17 or 18, was released and moved to a different city, started a new life, found love, had kids, found a job. Everything was uh, back on track. And about 10 years later, her son or her daughter in high school Googled together with friends the last name and came across a website that had published mugshots of the mother in prison uh, as they published all the mugshots of all the prisoners in the state for the last 20 years uh, and indexed that through Google. And suddenly the word spread in school that she's an ex-convict and had been in prison and her entire life fell apart for something that had nothing to do with who she was at the present And society had made sure that we would forget that she had been in prison 15 years ago, but the Internet made sure that uh, we didn't. What do you see as the solution to this problem then, Victor? I mean, you know, everybody who's engineering new products is trying to make it easy, easier for me to save bits and pieces of my life, everything I see, I hear, I experience, or I think. And I can also share them with anybody who wants to follow me on Twitter. What's the solution? How can, how can we stop this tsunami of uh, unnecessary information, if you will? You know, rather than self-censoring ourselves and not sharing information with others and therefore not using and utilizing the value inherent in the Internet tools and the Web 2.0 tools that we have from Facebook to Twitter to uh, Flickr, uh, what I suggest is to give back to the people the choice of how long they want something to be remembered or when it wants to be forgotten. And one way to do that is to have expiration dates for information so that when you put up a photograph on Flickr, you can specify how long that photograph should be up on Flickr. And a month from now, it would just vanish if you have an expiration date set, uh, you know, one month from now. 
Uh, and that's the type of power, the type of choice that I want the individuals to have. Do you think they would do that? Can you actually imagine a majority of the folk out there uploading their Flickr photos and saying, by the way, this will self-destruct in six months or a year or whatever? Uh, well, you know, if you have to not only select the file name, but also an expiration date, you, you basically have to spend a few seconds thinking about how long you want this photograph or this piece of information, this this Twitter tweet uh, to be available. Uh, that would probably be quite helpful because also it would remind us continuously of the, the fact that most information is not timeless. It's connected to a particular context in time and therefore loses its relevance over time. Victor Meyer-Schoenberger, thank you so much for being with us today. You're most welcome. Victor Meyer-Schoenberger is director of the Information and Innovation Policy Research Center at the National University of Singapore's Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. There's a title that will tax your memory. He's also penned a book, Delete the Virtue of Forgetting in the Digital Age. It's one thing to erase memories from your computer, but what about deleting excess data in the human brain? We'll start with the brains of rats first. In his lab at SUNY Downstate, neuroscientist Todd Sachter and his team isolated an enzyme, PKM Zeta, that is associated with preserving memories. If the team could affect the working of this enzyme, they could control long-term memory in these rats. Sachter discovered that a drug they named Zip was able to do just that if injected into a certain part of the brain. He first taught the rats to move around a chamber, but when they entered one specific area, they received a mild electric shock. Kind of an unwelcome event. So the rats learned not to enter that area. Then Dr. Sachter injected the rats with Zip, which interferes with the enzyme PKM Zeta, and they went into the danger area, oblivious to the danger. These rats were back to square one. I saw this sort of memory deletion once in a movie, Men in Black. Todd, you've invented a, a neuralizer, really, a device that wipes memories clean, but for rats. Is that right? Yes. The point, though, was not like Men in Black to come up with a way of erasing memory. The, the point was really to test the scientific idea that we understood perhaps how long-term memories are stored. And the results were, were positive in the sense that we, we showed that long-term memories are stored by this very specific molecule called PKM Zeta. How could you tell that these rats had lost their minds or at least their long-term memories? You know, you can't really ask them. That's right, but you could train an animal, which is what we did with the rats, and we waited a period of time. We've waited from a day. We've even waited up to three months. And then we would inject this drug called Zip that inhibits the enzyme PKM Zeta and then test to see whether the memory was there. Basically, the result was that the animals that were injected with the drug that inhibited PKM Zeta, even though the drug lasts in the brain just for a couple of hours, the memory was gone after the drug was injected and stayed gone for even weeks later of testing. Yeah, you gave them this, this drug called ZIP. I, I noticed it wasn't called ZAP, but presumably ZIP is an acronym. Right. It's, it's an acronym for Zeta Inhibitory Peptide. All right. Can you explain to me in, in sort of a layman's terms how this drug worked to erase the memories of these rodents? Well, the key thing to understand is scientists never understood how long-term memories are stored in the brain. Basically, well, the breakthrough was to identify this one specific molecule, PKM Zeta, that had the key role in maintaining memory. And the remarkable thing about PKM Zeta, which was really completely unexpected to most neuroscientists, is that it's an enzyme, and that it's a special enzyme found only in the brain that is continuously active, and that you needed this continual chemical reaction, which was catalyzed by the PKM Zeta enzyme, to keep the memory going. Now, we're talking long-term and short-term or just no, long-term? very specific to long-term memories. The short-term memory, even with the drug right in the brain, was perfectly fine. So it doesn't affect their immediate behavior. It, it, it isn't dangerous right. for them to get this drug because, uh, you know, uh, the, the short-term memory, which you need to deal with everyday things, that's all still there. That's correct. So it's essentially as if we had a hard disk in which we erased the previous information that was in the hard disk but then did not damage the hard disk so that you could relearn something all over again and that new information could still be stored. 
Now, your intention here, Todd, is not to obliterate rodent memories, after all. I mean, there's a, very, right. <laughs> there's a really an important practical application or two you have in mind. The practical applications are, I think, more in the terms of how we can now enhance memories by increasing the amount of this enzyme in the brain, perhaps, and make people with dementia, you know, you know have less of a amnesia. The other general goal in terms of practical application is with people with post-traumatic stress disorder. But there, the problem is, as you can imagine, that this drug ZIP is like way too powerful, right? Because it doesn't affect specific individual memories that are in a, stored in an area of the brain. It's erasing all of them. So we're trying to come up with ways to make it more specific erasure of individual memories, and that might turn out to be a treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder or for other um, psychiatric problems. Okay, so I can see that's the problem. If it gets rid of all long-term memories, okay, you lose the, the very disturbing memories of some sort of trauma that may have occurred to you, but you also lose all your high school girlfriends. I mean, everything is gone the long term. Well, for me, those are pretty traumatic, oh, too. Okay. But, you know. All right. But does it disturb you that uh, for the, any organization involved in spying or, you know, anybody dealing with confidential information, that this might, might have applications that might not sit so well with you? Uh, yeah, there are a lot of potential uh, applications that don't fit well at all with a lot of, you know, ethical issues because, you know, in, in essence, our, ourselves are, are our memories to a large degree. So we're really talking about having access to the easy pharmacological manipulation of the essence of, of ourselves. So, uh, yes, there are a lot of ethical issues. But the point is, is really to not to come up with, you know, neuralizers like Men in Black. Again, the point is to come up with an understanding of how memories are stored so that one day we can treat diseases such as Alzheimer's disease or the converse post-traumatic stress for which people are, re you know, real people are really suffering. All right. Well, Todd Sachter, I want to thank you so much for a, a memorable interview. Oh, you're very welcome. Todd Sachter is a neurologist at SUNY Downstate in Brooklyn, New York. And that's it for our show. Our thanks to Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Sandra Chung, and Jay Weiler for their help with the program. Also, the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, where looking for life elsewhere in the solar system depends upon understanding of how life works right here on Earth. You've been listening to Thanks for the Memories on Are We Alone? And if you just can't get enough of our program and want to hear it again, and after all, with my memory, I often have to hear things twice, please visit our website, radio.seti.org, where you'll find more. And if you're really keen, and if you remember, please become a member of our Are We Alone fan club on Facebook or leave a comment about the show on our iTunes page. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news in technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.